Welcome to Over to Europe. This podcast is produced by students of Civica, the European University of Social Sciences. I'm your host, Aniket Narawad, a first-year Master of Public Policy student at Hertie School, Berlin. Europe has played an instrumental role in shaping the world we live in. European countries dominated the world in 18th and 19th century. After World War, from 1945 until 1989, there were two dominating powers in the world, the United States of America and the Soviet Union. After fall of Soviet Union in 1989, the USA dominated the world until recently. But today, due to the rise of China and other countries, dynamics of the world are changed. We live in a different world order today. In this episode, we are going to explore the role of Europe in the current world and try to understand the relationship of Europe with the rest of the world. We are also going to look at how Europe will make a way for itself in the future. To start, I am going to discuss the current world order and Europe's approach to it with Professor Mihai Gio. Professor Mihai is a professor of political science at National School of Political Science and Administrative Studies in Romania. Professor Mihai focuses on European foreign policies. Professor Mihai is also vice rector at SNSPA. We are seeing a new world order recently, which is which is coming uh, because of the rise of China and other Asian countries in the world. Can you just summarize the current world order for us in the context of Europe? Yeah, it's a, I, I totally agree that it's a totally different world than it was in 89, for example, when we had to power... And after that, we had just a superpower, the United States. Now we are speaking more and more about a multilateral uh, world, a world where United States, Russia, European Union, Brazil, Asian countries, but also other countries are trying to gain more power, more influence in the international system. Also, we see the United States after the Trump administration that they are trying to be more selfish, that they are trying to understand uh, better what's happening in the world, but in the same time to put their interest on the first place. We see that the, I don't know how to call it, the, um, the alliance between the European states and the United States that was considered impossible to break that it has a lot of problems. So European Union it's, has to face now a new situation. His, her friends, its friends, I don't know how to call it, are not together with them. They don't share anymore the same values, the same ideas. They are asking European allies to pay for their security. As probably everybody knows, United uh, States were and still are the main uh, security um, guarantee of the European states. But now the situation seems to change. Europe and America together championed the values of liberal democracy. They championed the values of human rights until now. But with suppression of America and Europe to a certain degree, there is a void of carrying this value ahead. What is going to happen with this value? How is How are these values of liberal democracy, human rights are going to carry ahead? in the changing world order from now? I think this will remain the main, let's say, the, the, main, um, the main ties between the United States and Europe. They had and continue to have a special relation because they share values. 
It's very easy to have allies, it's very easy to have partners, it's very easy to have an agreement with a country, but it's very hard to share values, to have, to have the same values. Imagine that the United States, since their beginning, they shared with the European countries, with some of them, after that with more of them, the same values, and these values, my opinion is that uh, they are going to continue to be shared and um, spread in the world in a bigger or a smaller um, scale, but for sure they will go further with this cooperation in terms of values. The problem is that we, we can see in Europe and in the United States that these values are not so sure, not so safe as we thought. We speak about um, LGBT's rights, so we speak about the media rights, we speak about the freedom of, uh, of higher education, of universities, we speak about anti-Semitism, we speak about black and, and white, we speak about a lot of things that we consider that are clear for the Europeans and the, for the Americans, and now we, we see we see in our life, in our daily life, that it's not so clear, it's not so sure that these rights are here and that they will stay here forever. So I think every day the Europeans and the Americans, they have to prove that they believe in these values, that they want to promote these values in the world, and that the commerce and the money are not more important than, than values. Because sometimes we have this impression, or I have this impression, that even the Western countries, they are ready to uh, to forget for a moment about um, about uh, values when it's about money, about commerce, about uh, commercial ties, and so on and so forth. And EU, China is the best uh, is the best example uh, for this. European unions usually in the common declaration they are promoting the human rights, the democracy, and so on and so forth. While in the relation with China, they are more let's say softer than uh, than usual. Because the the commercial interest it's uh, it's it's bigger than the than the values. There are conflicts in Ukraine. There are conflicts in Syria. Uh, there is Brexit also happening, which is in a way also a foreign foreign policy crisis uh, for both the UK and also for the Europe. Could you just briefly go through each of the conflicts and tell, summarize it for us? Okay, around Europe, I think we have different kind of conflicts. We are we are having frozen conflicts that we have them for thirty. 30-something years, we can see Transnistria, we can see Nagorno-Karabakh that was warm a little bit this uh, this period and now seems to go also back to a frozen one. We had Ossetia and Abkhazia in, uh, in Georgia, we had a little bit of fire there in 2008, but now it seems to be frozen again. And it seems that we are going to have a frozen one in uh, eastern uh, Ukraine. So these are the, let's say, the frozen conflict that the Europeans try to do something, but in the same time, not really. The problem is that they didn't, uh, the European state, states were not able to, um, to, to agree on a common solution. They tried to promote their national interest. For example, in Georgia, if you remember, Sarkozy, at that, pre at that moment, president of France, 
he went there, he tried to make peace between the Russian and the Georgians, uh, he tried to negotiate, to be the negotiator for the peace and so on and so forth. But European Union was not really present. France, yeah, France was present, but European Union not so not so present. In Minsk, when they uh, when they tried to, to, to debate about they tried to negotiate about the the future relation uh, between Ukraine and uh, and Russia, the same. Germany and France, they were present, they mediate the conflict, but the European Union was, okay, somewhere in, in the back, not so present. So this is a problem that the European states, they cannot find a common uh, position and to promote it. For example, we have Belarus. Okay, it's not a conflict. It may become an uh, a internal conflict near the border of, uh, of EU, and we see that we have some states that they block the, the, the sanction against Belarus, that they say, okay, we shouldn't be so harsh with the, with the regime there, and so on and so forth. In uh, Middle East, because you mentioned, um, um, you mentioned Syria, but we have problems in Israel and what's happening with uh, what happened, in fact, with the American uh, uh, position there supporting the, the, the demands of Israel. We have the Iran and what's happening now in Iran and the uh, possible conflict there that would be a big issue for European Union, first of all, and after that for the, for the United States. European Union is promoting a multilateral solution. That is a good one usually, but not so efficient all the time. In all this conflict, they proposed, let's bring all the factors on the table, discuss like was in the Iranian nuclear uh, file. Okay, that was a success for the moment because United States decided to withdraw. But for the moment, that was a success. But all the other formats, these multilateral formats, they were not so successful, and uh, I'm not very sure that they are going to be. So the European Union uh, policies about this conflict, we can speak about the conflict in, uh, in Africa and so on. It was a soft position. First of all, because they are using... The, the Europeans, usually they are using the diplomacy. They are using, using the soft power. They are using uh, instruments that uh, are not so coercitive to, with these countries. So they prefer soft measures that sometimes are really good, but sometimes they are not working. And for the moment, we see that they are not working. If you ask me what's the solution, I don't know. But for sure, this, this, uh, this strategy is not working. And if European Union wants to do something, wants to prove that they are relevant in the international arena, they should change something. Yeah, I think, I think you mentioned a couple of very interesting points here. One is the undecisiveness of, uh, and the inefficiency of the EU uh, when it comes to foreign policy. We need, uh, when it comes to conflicts around the countries, uh, we need a strong, decisive leadership, first of all. And second, you, you talked about EU not taking strong enough stances. You talked about, we don't know the solution yet, but let's let's look at one of the consequences. One of the clear consequences uh, EU had uh, because of the conflicts around it is migration. Because of Syria, it had a lot of uh, migration. And I think it is safe to say after five to six years of the whole uh, migration, Europe is permanently changed. This is, this is, uh, this is permanently changed. And 
how has foreign policy affected the migration and how does EU sees for uh, migration now? <laughs> That's a difficult question. Um, migration, I would say that EU as a whole, as an organization, as a whatever, uh, they are supporting, they are still supporting the migration. They are uh, trying to help these people coming from conflict areas, these uh, people that risk their life to come to, to Europe for a, better, for a better life. So in terms, at least at, in terms of declaration, they are supporting. You see the European Commission, you see the European Parliament that ask countries like Italy or other countries from the South uh, to help these uh, immigrants and so on and, and so forth. The problem is, are the states. The states are not ready to accept this phenomena anymore. We saw what happened in Italy with Salvini and his party. We see what's happening in Poland or uh, in Hungary, that they are saying that they are not uh, willing to accept immigrants. Uh, EU went to the, to the court of justice with these countries, but they continue to say we are sovereign, we don't want them, we don't accept them. Also, we have states that supported this. For example, Germany, Madame, uh, Madame Merkel is the best example that she supported this idea. She saw an opportunity also, because Europe, let's be sincere, Europe is, uh, is, going, is getting old and they need uh, labor force, they need uh, new citizens, new blood, I would, I would dare to say. And uh, Eastern European countries should be more open to the idea. But in the same time, I think we need a totally new policy in terms of Im immigration. The Dublin 1 and Dublin 2 agreements, they never imagined that millions of immigrants will come on the European territory. So we need a new legislation to protect the countries, but in the same time to protect these human beings that are trying to come for a safer place in Europe. So my last question would be about higher education and uh, alliances like Civica. We're going through a quite a lot of change happening right now in the world. Uh, the world is reshaping itself. And for this kind of reshaping, uh, it happens once in a century, uh, at least what we are seeing right now. It needs a lot of intellectual power. It needs a lot of higher educational power. What do you think about how, how higher education has a, a role to play in this, specifically higher education of Europe. The human resources was and continue to be an important asset for Europe. So the investment in education, and I will put here also research, research innovation, because I cannot split them. The investment in education and research should be, should be the main focus of European countries. They are not able to compete in terms of production. They are not uh, able to compete in terms of resources. They are not able to compete in many terms, in terms of military power, but they still can compete in terms of uh, intelligence, in terms of uh, human resources, in terms of high qualified human resources. And this investment is an investment for the future, not for one year, for two years, for 10 years. It's an investment at least for a century. Century. So I, I, I think European Union should championship this idea on education, to invest on education and research. They are doing this, but I think I'm, I'm teaching also EU policies. And I'm, I, I get upset when I see that a lot of money are going to policies that are important, but are policies 
of the last century, agricultural and other policies that are important. I'm not saying that they are not important, but we need to invest more money in research, in innovation, in human resources, because this is the only asset that European Union has at this, at this moment. Imagine that after the Brexit, no European universities in, in the first 10 for sure, I'm not sure that in the first 20 universities in the world we have no European presence. Without investment in education, Europe has no place in the big actor's table. I'm almost sure that in the next 40, 50 years, Europe will be irrelevant if they don't invest in education and innovation. So I, I fully agree with you that uh, Europe needs education and needs investment in education. This is Professor Mihai, who helped us understand where Europe stands in the current world. To discuss the future of Europe in the world, we wanted to talk to students who focus on foreign policies and international relations. The future leaders of Europe. I discuss future of Europe in the world with Lucia who studies international relations at the Central European University. We also have Francesca who studies Master of Public Policy at Hutty School, Berlin. And finally, we have Stephen. Stephen is a dual degree student at Sciencespo and London School of Economics and Political Science. Europe, Europe is surrounded by several dis disputes around it. You have Turkey in the south, you have Syria nearby, you have Ukraine on the east. Uh, there are issues everywhere around Europe. And until now, America, it was relying heavily on America. It was relying on the tires. Francesca, what do you think about the security issues of Europe? How will they evolve in the future? Um, I think you're right to point out, especially Turkey. Uh, I think Turkey has been sort of bothering a lot of actors lately. And I personally wish that there would be more sort of action on that. Recently, I think about three weeks ago, Greece came out sort of imploring Germany to stop, or in general, European nations to stop selling weapons to Turkey because they were saying, well, those weapons are just being turned on us. Um, and continuing sort of the bloody conflict that's happening in the Mediterranean or in that area. I, that's not the Mediterranean, that's a different ocean. Um, and so I think it's it's definitely will be complicated here. The issue is, especially in Germany, there's a massive reluctance sort of to rebuild the military uh, for sort of obvious reasons. Um, I think France might step up and take up the role, and I think they sort of want to of like sort of the security guarantor of the European Union, now that the European Union has lost the UK, which was quite a large military. Um, and Macron has been known to call for a sort of a stronger Europe, maybe a European army, which I think is obviously just going to be sort of a, a European cooperation between national armies because a European, like a, above a supranational army under the EU, I don't think is feasible. Um, and of course, there's also Italy that has quite a strong army and they have been known to be quite military, like so quite defensive on their security. Uh, the issue is with Italy is they're sort of getting increasingly alienated by the EU, mainly due to the immigration crisis. Yeah, maybe I would add um, to the whole question of where Europe is going to try to position itself in this sort of new bipolar world. Um, that, you know, first and foremost, I think the key word for Europe will still remain multilateralism. 
and I think in, in, in that respect, it's quite interesting to um, read this year's interview of uh, Emmanuel Macron with um, Le Grand Continent, and also last year when he gave his, interview, his famous interview with uh, The Economist, in which famously he said that NATO was brain dead. And that really uh, neatly aligns with the Commission's program of you know, using multilateral um, channels to you know, fight for the rule of law, fight for uh, peace and international security in the relevant um, councils and, and, and fora. Um, the problem is, however, what we've seen in the last couple of years is that multilateralism has been dealt a, a heavy blow by this emergent paradigm embodied by Trump and uh, Bolsonaro, for example. And I say emergent for a reason, right? Because misinformation, failed liberal intervention, uh, and weak support have undermined international institutions. Um, but on the other hand, of course, we need multilateral fora in order to deal with our time's most uh, pressing issues, for example, climate change and you know the transition to sustainable um, technology, and of course, transnational transnational threats as well. Um, so yeah, in that respect. Well, we should hope that the European Union can champion a, a multilateralist um, approach uh, and will be backed up by its historic partners. You mentioned uh, quite uh, important words, uh, rule of law. Uh, you also mentioned the, the democracy, uh, liberal democracy. These uh, values were championed by Europe and not just Europe, but Western world, America, Europe, but the, all of the Western world. These values just doesn't don't come are not recent values. These values come from French Revolution. These values come from age of age of enlightenment. And these values were championed by whether it is liberal democracy, whether it's rule of law, whether it's equality, human rights. Uh, and military was used to uh, implement these values across the world. What do you guys think about who is what is going to happen with these values, the values which were cherished, which were implemented, which were propagated until now by Europe and the Western world? I think we're currently, I'm especially thinking of France, we're seeing, so France was the sort of seat, it's like the, the nation that sort of burst enlightenment in many regards. And right now in France, we're seeing, I think, what is sort of a concept redefinition of what liberal democracy means to the French nation. And we're seeing with, like, there's a rise in anti-separatism laws. Macron recently banned homeschooling, uh, tried to prevent sort of uh, religious schools. Um, and so I think we're starting to understand maybe what are the limits of what liberal democracy really means. And I think the rest of the world is very aware of what sort of liberal democracy means to the West, because we can't ignore the imperialistic legacy. Um, I think one of the biggest examples has been Libya, um, and also to some degree what's happening with the YPG in Rojava, is they mean one thing for here and another thing for the rest of the world. And they sort of actually enabled um, the rise of humanitarian military intervention. So what I think when I was thinking about this question is one of the most important things that Europe has, which I think all Europeans can speak to, is sort of the European lifestyle, which seems trivial like this, but I think it's a set of regulations and norms that allows for a certain standard of living and in a way and yes it might make it it makes it less you know liberal market competitive it makes it 
maybe not be able to compete with some of the, like China, obviously. But I think it's one of the most important things that Europe has, and that it should really be careful in sort of keeping that because it is what makes Europe special and coveted. Yeah, I think it's very important to point out that actually even European Union or the, some of the member states within European Union have troubles with uh, maintaining liberal democracy. So, for example, let's look at Hungary. Uh, some even called it illiberal democracy. And I think this is one of the problems of liberal democracy in general, because, you know, you rightly pointed out that it's a Western concept. You know, it was um, advocated for in Western Europe. But then, for example, right now, European Union is not just Western Europe, although sometimes it may appear it is dominated by Western Europe, but there are other countries. And when liberal democracy, when they were in the time of transition in uh, after the uh, dissolution of Soviet Union and, you know, all the after all the revolutions happening in 1990s, you know, they were striving to get to the European Union. So they were um, there. They were agreeing to accept all everything that European Union was requiring them to accept. However, once they uh, got what they want, once they got into the European Union, uh, they started to realize that actually liberal democracy in terms of cultural um, terms is not what we want. It may be what they want in terms of economic um, relations, but you know, in cultural terms, it is more problematic. And I think this is what's happening in Hungary because they were um, happy to accept the economic point of liberal democracy, but not the cultural one. So that's why you can see the rise of nationalism in these countries and populism and like this rhetoric is gaining more traction in these countries. And you can see that not just in Hungary, but other countries such as Poland um, as well, where, you know, they, uh, they people fear this liberal agenda. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important to point out. Thank you, Lucy. I think you, you, you brought up a very interesting perception here, which is comes from the Eastern Europe. You often tend to the, as you said, Western Europe tend to dominate the EU even today. Could you, Lucia, again, the question to you, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about how Western Europe sees the world? Eastern Europe looks at the world? Because Eastern Europe is comparatively new, like the liberal, the democratic Eastern Europe is comparatively new. Uh, it, it, it was formed in 1989. Could you talk about how it was, how it used to relate earlier before 1989, how it, it relates right now? Basically, uh, for the Central and Eastern Europe, uh, European Union, well, at the time it wasn't really European Union, but, you know, this community was something, um, it was like a dream for them, you know, because human rights were restricted, um, people were oppressed, they couldn't practice their religion. So European Union was something like a dream for them. And once they uh, gained European Union, and join NATO, they felt like finally we are here. We've joined. We, we've rejoined Europe because prior to um, the twentieth uh, century, you know, um, these countries were part of Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire, and they felt like we we're European countries. But suddenly they were kind of alienated. So they felt like they fe- felt this joy that finally we are back where we are supposed to be. But then this kind of um, Sadness came in because there was this real, real realization that we're still not really uh, conceived as a part of Europe because we're not Western countries. We're just like the Eastern and Central Europe. So I think this kind of um, sadness or I don't really know how to call it is kind of setting in now. Um, and this is what the political elites are using to, um, you know, 
grabbing nationalistic fears and yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, build on one of the uh, one of the points that uh, Lucia made earlier, um, just in terms of how the pandemic maybe sh- shaped the, the global order. Uh, thinking about this in, in paradigmatic um, terms, right? Um, there was an interesting take in the midst of the pandemic that basically argued that rather than alter the course of history, the pandemic and its aftermath would um, speed up the already existing dynamics. And in that case, that is to say that our 20 years of liberal hegemony might come to an end much more quickly than we anticipated. Right? This, of course, has to do, has to do with the uh, demise or like decline of the West and the rise of the rest. Um, and what we, we see, and Lucia has pointed this out, that, you know, the illiberal paradigm um, becomes less and less stigmatized. And, you know, the challenge even comes from within, as you said, from, from Hungary, uh, from Poland, and also like from Turkey. Um, and and you, you rightly pointed out that Mr. Orban even takes pride in, in that. And I think like in terms of ramifications for the future, um, the great risk, in my opinion, is that human rights and liberal values will almost become a concept that applies in this sort of Western bubble only, and it will maybe be rivaled by an illiberal approach that will be very appealing to the rest of the world, maybe because also of, uh, because of trade and, and, and investment interests. And um, yeah, I mean, I think what, what we should fear uh, for the future is that the, the values that have been championed um, in the past may, may lose their appeal and their uni- universality. Let's talk about, uh, uh, Stephen, I'll get back to you again. What are the major chunks of the kind of parts of the world which are coming up now? China is an ob- obvious one. I mean, in terms of, I think it would probably be misguided to measure power just in terms of economic growth and, and share of, of world trade. Uh, and I can see that you, you guys agree with that. Um, because also, of course, there is the, the soft power that accompanies uh, might and, and power and also, you know, just the ability to set norms. And that is why I would argue that um, of all the other um, BRICS countries, I don't really see um, contenders that would be able to exercise uh, you know, soft power to the same degree that, for example, China could in the future. Um, of course, uh, you know, countries like Russia have tried to uh, make their influence felt in, in, in Europe and all over the world in a sort of like return of a, of a geopolitical game ever since um, roughly 2014, 2015. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm wondering for how long this can go on. Um, and um, I, I don't really see, I don't really see any other sort of credible, I would, I would call it challenge for hegemony coming from uh, all of these emerging countries other than uh, China, probably. So I, I, would, I would sort of agree with your, your take on, on sort of like a bipolar world um, and in between there will be Europe. I completely agree with Stefan's point on there's also power in sort of who can set norms and many countries can simply can't really set norms. And I'm, for example, thinking a little bit about Latin America, just simply because their governments are still quite unstable and they're still, 
you know, changing to their constitution or they, they're increasing their parliamentary, they're decreasing, I mean, all these things, which I think prevent them from being to some degree taken seriously. Um, I would say that the one area that is quite stable and I think is potentially very able of setting norms is the Gulf area, which Europe tends to overlook and to not like, but they're stable, they have an alliance, um, they're reaching out to, the, to sort of the rest of Africa. They've also created alliances with all the border countries in Africa, to some degree, all the functioning border countries. Um, and so I think that's a potential pole of sorts. I don't think we're going to get to a tripolar world anytime soon. Even getting to a bipolar world, we still have a little bit of roads. Let's talk about China a little bit now. It is the it, it is something that is challenging the Western world continuously. It, it, it is continuing to challenge now. Lucia, do you, would you want to tell us about how the emergence of China is, uh, is challenging the Europe and the Western world? Yeah, so I think it kind of ties back to what we've already discussed uh, with regards to uh, the liberal values and human rights, because um, China you know, is successful even without liberal values, even without human rights, uh, with, you know, um, they are able to engage economically, politically with multiple countries. And actually, they tend to be even more successful in places where, you know, USA or Europe hasn't been successful. So um, I think that's quite a big of a challenge. And also because of the economic interdependence that's happening. So like, almost all of the countries have some kind of trade with China. And this is such a, a huge power that China possesses and can use. So for, for example, if you look at the EU-China summit that has just happened recently, you know, EU came there with like this strong um, agenda of what they want to achieve and actually very little has been achieved. And like, for example, when the EU um, has pointed out to the violation of human rights in China, you know, uh, the Chinese president just responded, look at the violation of human rights in Europe, like there are still violations of human rights in Europe. And I think as long as um, we can, well, as long as Europe and the US can kind of um, deal with the issues they have in their own uh, spaces, I think China will still have this leverage towards these countries because, you know, China will always be able to point out the flaws and mistakes and you know, just like turn, reverse the tables. And yeah, so I think China is a big of a challenge for the whole of the world because of this. Depending on the how the world has changed so far, the Europe has to respond to it. It cannot rely on America, it cannot rely on the relationship anymore. It has to create its own strategy, a security strategy, which is the grand strategy. And it also has to create its own trade strategy. Help us understand how is... Europe going to re, uh, reframe its strategies, both the strategies, security and the grand, uh, trade strategy, to uh, to to find its place on its own without America in the world. Yeah, I mean that's obviously a huge question. Um, in terms of security, I think one area that Europe already has a head start is in, to some degree, cybersecurity or anything that would fall under that, specifically data privacy. Um, and I think in the future, as we're moving towards what, you know, Davos would call the fourth industrial revolution with an increased digitization of the economy and an automation of the, uh, the economy, um, a lot more attention will be put on data. And that is one area that Europe actually is way ahead of the United States and of most of the rest of the world on 
talking a lot about data, talking who should have the data, where it should be stored. And I think that's very important for itself to position, to position itself in whatever the economy of tomorrow is. Um, as for how it's going to position itself vis-a-vis the United States, only time will tell. To some degree, there will always be a partnership between the U.S. and Europe simply because of you know shared uh, immigration, transatlantic history, colonialism, all that. Um, obviously, the U.S., and it makes sense, they're going to be pulling away their troops from Europe and positioning them on the West Coast. That's just obvious, and I think it's wrong for Europe to be angry about it to some degree. They also haven't really pulled away their you know, security from Europe. They've just moved one base from Germany to Poland. It's not really a huge deal. Um, but I think also very importantly for Europe is I would like to see more European, especially like people like us, students who are like into policy and politics, talking about European grand strategy, because I think so far Europe sort of has gotten away with riding on a little bit people's coattails. Um, Germany, especially in terms of security, you know, they don't need to insure their tri routes. They're sort of insured by other people. So just starting to talk about these issues would be massive and having them taught in policy schools would be huge as well. What What are the uh, areas where Europe can actually lead the world? Francisca already talked about data and cybersecurity. Let's, let's go on to one by one. What are the ambitions? What are the leadership roles Europe can take? So I think one quite obvious one is climate change. So if you look at Europe, you've got countries that have been, you know, for quite some time now trying to push for um, reforms and for policies that protect the environment. So, for example, you have Sweden where they have to actually bring in uh, garbage to recycle because the recycle system there is so good. So I think climate change is an obvious one because um, there there's been many initiatives going on um, to you know contest it and it's going to be a big question in the coming future and also uh, for the next generations as you know we're um, using the planet more and more and as of now there is no planet B so uh, I think this is a major issue and also um, I remember reading one article where it was kind of like in order to make trade with Europe, Chinese were um, willing to make some concessions in terms of the uh, environmental policies um, in exchange for the trade. So I think this is something we, the Europe can use to, uh, to bargain as well. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I think what you say, the last point you were saying, the importance of Europe on the regulations, it's, it's quite important because Europe is such a, such a, such a huge continent. And if if Europe takes a lead on uh, creating regulations around, around any any sector, it it ha- it can it has the leadership, it has the potential to regulate the whole sector for the whole world. Francisca, what do you think? What kind of leadership role uh, Europe can take from here? So I'm going to give a little bit of a different answer. I think Europe has the potential of demonstrating the importance of regional development. Um, Europe so far has done a very good job, or I mean, in each nation say as well, of maintaining its countryside and preventing sort of complete economic erosion, which I think is the biggest challenge to at least sort of like liberal democracy as we like it. We're experiencing this huge rural to urban divide um, that is quite simply exacerbating inequalities to the point where we could have massive problems in our democracies, but also a huge backlash against our economic system. 
Europe has done a really good job so far of funding regions and helping regions build resilient communities, which I think down the road is going to be the difference between, you know, a happy population and an unhappy population and an unhappy population would probably vote to leave the EU. Yeah, I can only I can only echo what Francesca and, and Lucia have, have said so far. Obviously, in terms of the Green New Deal, the transition to renewable energy is crucial. Um, also, Europe will probably try to domesticate its supply chains for critical goods. We've seen this with protective uh, medical equipment, maybe a more resilient uh, global health policy that will prepare us for um, the next um, big outbreak. Um, but I would like to end on the notion that, you know, Brussels will be encouraged and also comforted by um, this new cabinet of, of President-elect Biden. Um, you know, a lot of Francophone uh, leaders in there, notably Anthony Blinken and, and John Kerry. Um, so there will be support for the next four years for all of the agreements and, and accords that are important to Europe. But beyond that, I think... Um, the imperative is that Europe develops strategic autonomy in order not to be su surprised uh, once again by any eventuality that happens on the other side of the pond. So strategic autonomy, being able to solve its own problems in, in the geopolitical sphere and also, you know, championing multilateralism. I think that will be the ambitions of, of Europe in the next couple of decades. That was the vision for Europe by the future leaders of Europe. The world is changing and how Europe relates to the world also must follow it. We already see changing policies around that in Europe. Let us see what kind of role Europe has to play in the coming times. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Over to Europe is produced by Nicholas Fellows and me, Aniket Narawad, with the help of Savika Community. Music in this episode was created by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is funded by German Academic Exchange Service. Subscribe and learn more at www.civica.eu slash over to Europe. Stay tuned for our next episodes.